A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. We're recording this on Wednesday, February 23rd of 2022. Our guest today is Gerald Griggs, who is a civil rights attorney, a criminal defense attorney based in Atlanta, a friend of the show. Gerald, welcome back. Thank you for having me. It's great to be back. Uh, you don't know what Gerald has gone through to do this podcast today. So we need to honor and thank Gerald. He's been in court all morning. He is literally sitting in a car right now to do this. Because when I signed on, I'm like, Gerald, do you have a seatbelt on? <laughs> yeah, I had a seatbelt on. I'm sitting in the car. We're about to head to another location. But I always want to be a part of the True Crime Daily uh, family. So I'm honored to be back on the podcast. Oh, we're thrilled to have you. Happy to wait for you. It's just, it's the lengths that you go to, we are, we're deeply honored. Thank you so much. So let's get to our cases. This is what we're looking at this week. Our two cases really center around mothers and videotapes. In one case, a mother of four who is struggling really to make ends meet is herself held up and then killed. And this is a woman who didn't have anything. So it's just so upsetting. And in the other case, we have a mom who's a millionaire and she is the accused criminal in this case. We're talking about a wealthy Connecticut mother who has gone from socialite to sex offender after pleading guilty to secretly filming naked minors in her $10 million mansion. Honestly, Gerald, you know, I have no sympathy for people of such privilege because they have all the means to get any help for any problems they may have in their life. There is no excuse for this. No, there's absolutely no excuse for this to to actually damage young people. And people don't understand how damaging it is, these sexual offenses against minors. So, you know, it's very difficult to have compassion for somebody that damages children. Absolutely. And for those of you who are regular listeners of this podcast, you probably know that Gerald represents the family victims in the R. Kelly case, R. Kelly being the rapper who is accused of uh, sexual uh, sexual assaults and trafficking of young women and just, just horrendous things that he is accused of. And he's been already convicted in one case, right? Yeah, that's right. He's been convicted in one case. He has three more cases. Uh, two of the cases will probably go later on this year, and he still has his sentencing on that uh, Brooklyn case. Uh, so he has a lot of issues to deal with. And, uh, you know, it's an honor to represent um, the families and, and some of the victims of Mr. Kelly. And again, I have no sympathy for individuals, especially now convicted individuals who have damaged uh, young people. Absolutely. Absolutely. With all of this privilege, with all of this access and power and money, it is such an abuse. But the first case we're going to talk about, this is really something. We're talking about the final moments of an Uber driver who was also a mother of four, and everything has been caught in chilling detail by the dash camera that she had in her vehicle for safety measures. We're talking about the victim here is Christina Spicuza, and she was the apparent victim of a robbery that went wrong that ended her life, but but there was nothing to rob. The woman didn't have anything. She barely had any money in any of her accounts, 
you know, and the police can attest to that. So there was nothing to take from her, you know, and she worked several jobs, several jobs, a day job. She drove for Uber at night. And this is what infuriates me about this crime in particular, because this is a woman who's doing everything she can, right? And and to be cut down like this is is just horrendous. So let's get to the details. 38-year-old Christina Spicuza was driving for Uber in the Pittsburgh area, and she was robbed and killed by one of her passengers, according to police. Now, you might say, Gerald, this is a pretty easy case to figure out because all you have to do is find, you know, her last passenger and at least question that person, right? So it seems like fairly simple on this one. Well, here's the thing. In other cases, that's mostly true. But here, this murder is so unique because there is video and audio of the assault to up until the time that the killer ripped the dash camera off. And so not only do we have the video and the audio that tells us what she went through, she begged for her life. She begged this man with a gun to her head to please not kill her because she has four children. And you know what he said to her? I got a family too. Oh my God, I want to flip a table when I hear stuff like that. Who is he to decide whose family gets to keep their loved one and and, and, and who doesn't? Oh, I'm so outraged. And that's, that shows the callousness of this. And, and you know, in this, this internet reality that we live in now, you had to know that in an Uber, someone was recording. And so that just shows the callous nature and the heinousness of this act. And just blatant disregard for human life. I mean, to tell a mother, I have a family, too. I, I You know, I'm, I'm just doing this because I need to do it. I mean, that just shows the, the, the depravity in this case. Absolutely. The other thing that makes this case very different from others is, you know, we're always wondering, how do cops solve a case? And OK, like we said, sure, look at the last driver, but excuse me, the last rider. But it's not quite that easy in this case, as we will see. Police and prosecutors have just released court records, and these court records have unbelievable detail of how the case was unfolding, the details that were provided to the authorities, not only by Christina's boyfriend, who had such great detail of what she kept wearing the car. He knew the model of the dash camera. He had the receipt. He knew where she kept the cell phone, everything he knew. So there was that. Plus, we also see in these court records, all of the tips that started coming in in real time and how police were able to track the cell phone and, and, and the dash camera, you know, the dash camera, can you believe it? Tossed on the side of the road because cops were able to, to take the GPS from her cell phone and marry it to license plate tracking on the freeways, highways. They were able to literally retrace the steps and they found the camera. Can you imagine a little camera in the weeds? Yeah, I mean, it shows the ability we have in this technology age, you know, from the, the license readers uh, to the red light cameras to, of course, the GPS in the phones and through Uber. And then, of course, like you said, the video, which was still there, still um, recorded. So, again, this this was a, this was a, an unusual case. Um, But again, it led in the right direction. 
Absolutely. So I I really want to take everyone step by step as things were unfolding, because I think for those of you who are always interested into how crimes are solved and what police do and what tools they have and how how the public can always help. This is a case that shows all of those things working in, in a synchronous manner. So here are the details because details matter in this case. They always matter, but in this case, it makes it so clear. On February 11th, which was a Friday, Christina's boyfriend reports her missing. As far as he knew, she had take she had been driving for Uber on Thursday night. And he told police that on the previous night, which was Thursday, that um, the, he had heard from her around 9 p.m. and that Christina always checked in with him while she was working. The two lived together. And so that already made him really nervous, really nervous. And he had really always been uh, very afraid of Christina's safety. So he's the one who installed the dash camera. He bought it for her. He installed it, you know, again, to increase her level of safety because she was driving for Uber at night. So the boyfriend told police, not only was there a camera and what kind of camera there was, he said to her, you know, she's got a pink iPhone. He says it's very distinctive. It has a screensaver that is a religious um, piece of scripture, very religious woman. And he gave police her um, code to get into the iPhone. Okay. Now you might say, well, what are police going to need all this for? You're about to see why the boyfriend's attention to detail was so helpful. Okay. And he even said to her, he even said to the police, she always has the cell phone plugged into the battery of, so he knows exactly where it is. He knows everything. And this again, we'll, we will see, we will reveal how this all works out. So police check Uber records and at 9.13 PM, Christina accepted a pickup request, requested by Tanya Mullen. So that much we know. Now we're going to go forward to Saturday. Thursday night, she's driving. Friday, she is reported missing. Still no information. Let's go to Saturday. Saturday, Christina's car is found. It's a gray Nissan Sentra with Uber stickers on it. It was found locked, but no keys anywhere. There was no cell phone and the dash camera was missing. Okay. And the car gets towed for evidence, right? So right there, Gerald, we're seeing how this is, how this is unfolding with the evidence. And there are multiple scenes going on at the time on Saturday. Saturday was just so crucial to this whole case. Absolutely. And I mean, we see how the facts are building into what happened to her and and, and how it's important that uh, this uh, technology is going to link all this together. So I think that the viewers need to understand that in this, again, technology world, you know, in real time, tech is helping to solve these cases. So Saturday, February 12th, it's a little bit afternoon afternoon time, lunchtime. So we've already found the car. Now there's a call to police that a body's been found in a wooded area near Rosecrest Drive. It is the body of a female. Uh, She was face down, still wearing her face mask from work, from being the Uber driver. They do a temporary ID. They say, we believe that this is Christina. And here's what's interesting. There's a nine millimeter shell casing found, but her cell phone was not on her or near her. So right now we are missing the cell phone and we're missing the dash 
camera, the dashboard camera. So the following day, which would have been Sunday, the medical examiner made a positive ID and said that she had been killed with a single gunshot to the back of the head, which exited her cheek. Mm. Right? Brutal. Just brutal. She never had a chance. And wait till we recount the events in the Uber drive, in the Uber car. It's unbelievable. So now I want everyone to realize we have several crime scenes working at the same time on Saturday. You have the car that's being processed. You have the crime scene where her body has been found processed. And you have Christina's body that is also being checked for evidence. So here you have three things going on simultaneously. It was such a busy Saturday. You're not going to believe this. So while all of that is going on, all of that is going on, police get a call that a pink cell phone, again, details, a pink cell phone with a crack screen has been found along the railroad tracks near the Triborough Expressway. Police are using the password given to them by the boyfriend and the phone unlocks. It makes it possible for police to immediately get information from her cell phone, the GPS records, the search history, and and so much more. Again, in the detail, even though Uber was helping with the investigation, again, in real time, you're saving time as opposed to waiting for court orders. Because, Gerald, I presume, unless you can unlock that, that cell phone, good luck trying to get Apple to help you. Yeah, I mean, Apple um, has a policy not to unlock cell phones. So, I mean, even with the subpoena, it's very difficult to get records from Apple. Uh, almost impossible. Many cases are foiled simply because you cannot get information. So it's important that the boyfriend gave the, the passcode so now they can get into all that data that's stored in the iPhone. So information's coming in from license plate readers. Information is being gathered from Christina's GPS and also mining it for what's going on as far as communications. So now we learn, are you putting your seatbelt back on? Where are you going? (laughs) You got to move. Okay. All right, Gerald. (laughs) Buckle in because this is going to be a heck of a case. It's going to be a heck of a ride. It's going to be a heck of a ride. All right, my dear. (laughs) So um, police then learn that Christina's cell phone was pulled from the charger at 9.33 p.m. See how important that is? What did the boyfriend say? She always has the cell phone in the charger to the car battery. Details matter. So at 1022, the phone's GPS pings at the location where her body was found. So we now know that she was most likely killed in this very short time frame. The user history reveals that someone was looking up the following. Dollar Bank, PayPal, and Venmo. The boyfriend was clear with police. They were low on money. They were struggling. There was no money in these accounts. We're just talking maybe a few bucks, not anything anyone would hold anybody up for. So meanwhile, right, so you've got financial forensics. You've got the GPS, all of this stuff being scrubbed. So here's the next thing. Let's get back to the passenger. So who ordered the car? Tanya Mullen says... According to Uber Records, she's the one who ordered the car. But guess what, Gerald? She's not the one who was in the car. Of course not. That'd be too easy. Exactly. As I was saying from the top, it isn't always how it appears. So Tanya agrees to 
go down to the police station and he she takes her boyfriend for support. Her boyfriend is identified as Calvin Crew. Well, Gerald, you can tell where this is going. Y'all already know where it's going. So uh, Tanya says that her boyfriend asked her to call him an Uber. And so she did. Then she claims that they FaceTimed each other a few times after midnight because he was somehow back outside her house after the Uber ride, which was only one way. And Mm -hmm. that she got back home at 1.30 in the morning and he was already inside. So uh, some loose alibis in there. I don't know what any of this means. And then Tanya, here's, here's something. Tanya tells police, though, she owns a nine millimeter gun, but she misplaced it at a birthday party. Who takes a gun to a birthday party? Yeah, who, who needs a gun at a birthday party? It's supposed to be a celebration, not a funeral. Mm-hmm. Well, she then she tells police, oh, yeah, but OK, so she lost it at the birthday party and she didn't report it missing because the day after the birthday party, she gave birth. And then she told police, besides having to give birth, then I was in and out of the hospital because I had COVID. This is what she tells police. Okay. All right. Whatever. Again, I'm telling you, so um, unbelievable details here on the interrogations. So while Tanya's telling her story in one interrogation room, her boyfriend Calvin is in another room telling police his version of events. And what I find interesting, Gerald, is the level of, of detail that Calvin provides, which ultimately turns out to be false, according to police. Yeah, and that's why you don't ever take your boyfriend to an interrogation without going over your story with your boyfriend. Right. Okay, so here's the thing. So police say to Calvin, okay, hey, Calvin, can we have your phone number and your phone? And Calvin says, oh, I don't have a cell phone. And police say, oh, really? Because I just saw you in the waiting room using a blue iPhone. <laughs> exactly. Okay, lie number one, Calvin, not so bright. So, um... Calvin told police that he needed an Uber ride, get this, to pick up his mail and some tax documents. Really? At 9.30 at night? Does this man even file taxes? He has a criminal record. That doesn't mean anything, but you know what I'm saying. Okay. So then he explains that um, he gave the Uber address differently than where he wanted to be dropped off because the computer, right, the GPS can never figure out the address that he, I mean, it was a really convoluted story as to why he was dropped off at some place other than the the address put into the Uber request. Calvin tells cops exactly how he walked, which direction and what he was wearing. He told them, you know, so you can find me. So police decide to check on the mailbox story. Now, Gerald, why would that be important since it really sounds ridiculous about him picking up mail at 9.30 at night to deal with some, you know, phony taxes? Well, I mean, you have to disprove his story, uh, disprove his alibi. So that's why you have to make sure you check out all the leads, even though they seem ridiculous. So here's what happens with the mailbox story. They talk to the people who live at that address and they tell police, yes, we do collect mail for Calvin and then we generally just send it on. And they confirmed Calvin didn't stop by Thursday night, like he said. So police go back to Calvin and what's his story? Oh, this is the good one. This is Calvin's explanation. He says, oh, I didn't go inside. I just checked the mailbox, wanted to see if there was anything for me, and then got on the bus. Of course. Of course. That makes sense. I mean, the chutzpah, unbelievable. I mean, this this guy, he just, 
is is just incredible. So then at this point, you know, we're still a, a few days out after the murder and um, after finding Christina's body. So police are now able to look at more phone records and they're looking at Tanya's cell phone records with Calvin. And there were some text messages on the night that he took the Uber. She orders the Uber for him. And according to police, this is what the messages show between the two. Now, the first one, not too troubling. Whatever you're doing tonight, be careful. Ah, that could go anyway, right? That could go either, either way. Exactly. But the last one that police have um, released to us says, quote, I'm not going to jail if we get caught. Mm, That's problematic. Yeah, it really is. It really is. Okay, so now we are one week out from the murder. This would be February 17th. It's Thursday, exactly a week ago. And police are back tracking more information because the data still needs to be processed. So they're looking for all the GPS that they can, and they finally hit the jackpot. This is the evidence jackpot they find because of of lining up the GPS along with the license plate readers. They line it all up. They find the dashboard camera. Not only do they find it, it still has the card inside it and the audio and the video have been preserved. It's a jackpot of evidence that also reveals how horrific Christina's final moments were. This is critical evidence in this murder. So according to the court records, the Uber app announces, drop off Tanya, 933. This is what's being recorded on the dash cam. You can hear everything. Calvin Crew, he's the one who's in the back of the car, pulls out a gun and points it at Christina, according to police, and says, keep driving. Christina reaches behind her because I guess she wants to feel like what's in her head. Maybe it's, you know, it could be anything, right? It doesn't necessarily mean that it's a gun. So as she's doing that, and this is all in the video, um, you can hear Calvin say to her, you've got to be joking. It's a gun. Really? Really? Okay, then then this is the next thing. Christina starts begging for her life. She says, I have a family. And this idiot responds, I have a family too. That's a direct quote. Then Christina says, I'm begging you. I have four kids. Calvin then grabs her cell phone and he says, do what I say and everything will be okay. And then the next thing you see is that Calvin is reaching for the dash cam, pulls it out and it stops recording. That's where the video and audio evidence ends. Pretty damaging, isn't it? Very, very damaging. I mean, it shows that he's the last person with her. It shows he's committing a forcible felony. And then, of course, all the other evidence points to he committed the murder. As a result, Calvin Crew, who's 22 years old, has been taken into custody and charged with homicide. And the motive appears to be robbery, but of course the problem is Christina didn't have anything. She didn't have anything, but she had her life. And that's what he robbed her of. That's what he did. He robbed her of her breath. Christina worked several jobs. You know, this this is just heartbreaking. She worked at Dollar Bank during the day. She drove for Uber at night. Plus, she made and sold crafts and she waitressed. Okay? This is a life that was hard, right? She, she worked hard. (sighs) So, um, 
Police have also revealed that after the brutal killing, apparently Crew, Calvin Crew and his girlfriend accessed Christina's banking apps to try and transfer money, the little money she had, over to the woman who called for the Uber, Tanya. So that's more damaging information. We do not believe that Tanya has been charged yet. She may or may not be. We do not know. What do you think? You think that she's going to be facing some charges or she's going to cooperate? I think based on my experience, I think she probably will be facing some charges because if they tried to transfer the money over to her account and then there's a text message that says, I'm not going to jail behind this. I mean, that shows that she's involved in the planning and was a part of the cover up. So she could be a party to a crime, maybe conspiracy to commit the armed robbery. And then, of course, that ties you into the murder. So she could be facing some liability. Wow. It's just incredible. Well, of course, Calvin has been arrested. Um, He was arrested on February 17th, and he was charged with criminal homicide, robbery, and tampering with evidence in the death of Christina Spicuza. Just a horrible, horrible case. Truly, truly sad. So unnecessary. Um, You know, she was a mother. You know, she had a full life ahead of her. And to be, you know, killed for absolutely nothing is just horrific. It really is. All right. Before we move on to our next case, we have a quick word from our sponsor. If you dread your weekly meal planning and trip to the grocery store, it might be time to check out HelloFresh. HelloFresh delivers pre-portioned ingredients to your door, including farm fresh produce that arrives within a week. So you get convenience without skimping on quality. HelloFresh offers the flexibility you need to easily customize your order online or in the app. You can even customize your favorite dishes with their new Hello Custom offerings by swapping out one protein or side for another, upgrading for a more luxe experience, or even adding protein to a veggie meal. HelloFresh offers 50 menu and market items to choose from every week, including veggie, fit and wholesome, family-friendly, and gourmet options, providing plenty of variety. So I have got to tell you that my box was really impressive, especially when they talk about the fresh produce. I can tell you that it's much fresher than what I usually find in the supermarket when it came to the vegetables. And the meats were just really beautiful, low in fat, which is really important to me to get lean meats. So um, I think you'll enjoy HelloFresh as much as I did. Go to HelloFresh.com slash TCD16 and use code TCD16, that's for True Crime Daily, for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. That's HelloFresh.com slash TCD16. Don't forget to use the code TCD16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. Our next case is out of Connecticut, where a wealthy socialite pleads guilty to secretly filming minors in her mansion. Hadley Palmer, 53 years old, whose father founded a successful hedge fund, is behind bars after admitting to recording minors naked in their underwear. The minors had no idea that she was videotaping them in her fancy house. She pleaded guilty to secretly filming three people, including a child. Well, they're all minors, but then one was under 15. And she said, and the police say that she did this for sexual pleasure. Gross. Really? 
The videos were taken in 2017 and 2018 at her $10 million Victorian mansion in Bellhaven, which is a part of Greenwich, Connecticut. It's like a little enclave of very, very rich and privileged people that overlooks the Long Island Sound. This is the kind of neighborhood where the hedges are massive, right? There's security everywhere. There's staff, there's cooks, there's gardeners, there's drivers, you name it. It's like the richest of the rich live in this area. According to the New York Times, this to me is unbelievable. It says that Bellhaven's bylaws, so Bellhaven would be like the development, that the New York Times says the bylaws say it strictly prohibits outsiders from toting cameras. What the heck does that mean, Gerald? That, that's interesting. Uh, I guess you can't invade anybody's privacy or take pictures of anything. So that, that's very concerning in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, they're worried about outsiders when they should be worried about the people inside. Yes. Okay? This is the problem with this community. All right. So Hadley will be registered as a sex offender. She is expected to serve anywhere between 90 days to five years in prison, along with 20 years of probation. But here's what I don't get. She's already started her 90 days, but she hasn't been sentenced yet. Isn't this a little bit ass backwards? How is she serving time before she's sentenced? Exactly, Gerald. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How? That's a, that's a new one. I mean, unless she came off of her bond and decided to turn herself in. But even then, you typically would say the person's serving their sentence before they've been sentenced. So that that's new for me. Yeah, there's some kind of thing in Connecticut where I think it's like a, not a diversion program, but it's like a way of showing that you're, you know, you are serious about owning up to what you did. And you like kind of it's, it's very like I say, it's ass backwards. OK, and it sounds to me like it's it has been made specifically for the rich and the privileged. Right. Because sounds would you right. ever if you were innocent or even if you accepted a plea deal, why in the world would you voluntarily go in before you had to and you knew how long you were going to be in there unless you know you're going to be out in 90 days? Absolutely. I mean, mm-hmm. I could see somebody volunteering to do community service before they're sentenced, but I don't know too many people that are going to volunteer to do time if they believe they're actually innocent. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Right. And again, unless there's a little backdoor deal going on that's like, yeah, just go in for 90 days. Everything will be fine. Don't worry. You'll never be sentenced to anything more than what you did, please. Okay. It's just, it, it just really, the whole thing makes me ill. In fact, there, um, there's something, I guess, that Connecticut used to have that was called, I've never heard this term, a shadow docket for the rich. Oh yeah. And the I've privilege. heard shadow docket. Yeah. I've heard that. And that they finally outlawed it, but it doesn't sound like it because so I guess that was something that you could if you had enough money, you could deal with whatever your legal problems were in the criminal system without anybody knowing. Absolutely. You could do you could resolve the case favorably and then it be sealed from public record uh, and goes off into the ether. Mm hmm. So here's the thing that's also bugging me about this case. I mean, I just this one's got me wound up. So. Her attorney asked that the records for this case be sealed, Mm -hmm. but they used the excuse, which part of it is very valid, that because there are minors involved, they want to protect the minors. All of a sudden, this woman cares about the minors? Give me a break. She doesn't give a crap about these kids. Yeah, they can protect the minors, 
by sealing their names, but not sealing the conviction. But that was that was great lawyering. Mm hmm. And the families of the minor victims agreed to having this sealed, which, you know, what sounds like a a settlement out of court. Some type of compensation was exchanged. You know what I think? I think that the parents of the victims are very not. Of course, all parents are very protective of their children, but they're probably thinking because they live in that stratosphere that they want to make sure this never gets out and they want to make sure their kids are able to work for Goldman Sachs and all the other, right? That their careers are in no way impacted by this. And I get that. But to the level that the person who committed a crime against your child is also protected? Yeah, and will probably be able to do it again to somebody else's child because there's no record of it. Oh, it's horrific. It's unbelievable the privilege you know, this this isn't the 1%. This is like 0.00005 of the 1%. They're so wealthy. Okay, so here's some background on these people, okay? So Hadley was born into money, and she married into money, and her children all attended the best schools. Of course they did. And, you know, you see her in all the society pages, and she's constantly at a fundraiser. You know the look, right? You know the look. So Hadley (laughs) married a man named Bradley, you know? (laughs) Only in Connecticut, right? Connecticut or Palm Beach? Where is really? Where else does Hadley marry Bradley, right? Yes. Next to Buffy and Biff's house. (laughs) Yes. Help me! I can't with this. And they're all wearing those those darker boat shoes. Mm -hmm. Oh my God! Their yachts. It's too much. It's just it's too much. So they were married for twenty eight years, and so Hadley's divorce from her husband Bradley Palmer may have revealed all of this information. This is where it came from. Yeah. Like a messy divorce. Oh, it's a messy divorce. And you know, Gerald, they haven't even settled the divorce. The divorce is like set for a few years, like for next year to deal with this. They're still in discovery. So here's what happened. In July, her husband, Bradley, sought access to messages from anyone she may have been sexually involved with Her husband's attorney also wanted access to her social media accounts, along with any videos or photographs she may have sent to anyone. And they wanted a list of any gifts that she may have bought people. And they wanted all of the information and accounts for dating apps. Who asked for something like this in a divorce? People that want to be messy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So Hadley and her team of lawyers objected to the motion. This, you have to explain to me. They asserted her Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. This is a divorce proceeding. This isn't a criminal case. Can you assert that in a divorce? Well, I mean, if it would lead to information that could be used against her, yeah, you probably can. But I mean, it also shows that you might want to sell this divorce real quickly because now you're, you're incriminating yourself or saying you have information that potentially could incriminate yourself which would cause law enforcement to start looking at you a little bit harder. Mm-hmm. So my guess is he knew something. He must have heard something. I think Bradley was looking and he's like, ooh, I'm on to you, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so this is the next step. So she wasn't arrested until October, and she was arrested for filming inappropriate videos of three teenagers. The New York Times reports the recordings showed several minors in intimate situations without their knowledge. The authorities classified one of the videos as depicting an obscene performance. 
I don't know. Hadley Palmer, again, arrested in October on several charges that included employing a minor in an obscene performance. Does that mean she was in it? It sounds like it. I don't know. That's the other thing, because everything's sealed. We don't know what the heck went on in this house. Um, so included employing a minor in obscene performance, three counts of voyeurism, second degree possession of child sexual abuse imagery and risk of injury to child. Okay. So the three victims were minors at the time. And because one was 15 or younger, that prompted the child endangerment charge as part of the plea deal. Prosecutors agreed to drop all, but the voyeurism and the child endangerment charges. Thoughts on that? Well, I mean, it sounds like a good deal if you're her lawyer, uh, but you are admitting that you enjoyed watching children in certain undecent acts and then endangering them while doing that. So it's very disturbing regardless of what the deal was. Yeah, yeah, very, again, seems very privileged in, in, in this. So then Hadley Palmer pleaded guilty on January 19th to three counts of voyeurism and one count of risk of injury to a minor. But we're not done with this. One would think this was an isolated incident or didn't have tentacles. Listen to this. Dr. Jerome Broadley, 83 years old. He's a Greenwich psychologist. He's also been arrested and his charge failure to report the matter as a requirement, right, of Connecticut's child welfare laws. He is a mandatory reporter. Mm -hmm. Mandatory. He reportedly treats children and teens, so I am just simply deducing here that he learned of what happened from one of those three victims who was traumatized by this event, and then he is now being charged for not telling the authorities what happened to these children. Absolutely, because that's why we have mandatory reporters. We cannot allow this type of conduct to happen. And when it's disclosed, you have to report it so law enforcement can take appropriate steps. So rightfully so, if, if he if this was disclosed to him and he didn't report it, um, then he, he's in trouble. And that's just even more damage that's being done to these young people. So, Gerald, explain to me from your point of view, how is it possible if you now have at least two adults involved in this, how you can seal these records? Because now we have a prominent psychologist involved. Yeah, I I mean, I don't know how you can get away with sealing these records. I mean, for the the common common good of the community, it needs to be known, not the names uh, and the information. Information about the victims, but the people who fail to protect these individuals and then damage them. So I, I don't know how you get away with that. I mean, mm-hmm. that's, that's a question uh, for Connecticut law because that that's just not, not proper. No, it's not. And the Associated Press actually um, was in court challenging the judge and this decision saying, you know, that the public has a right to know. Yes, of course, seal and protect the children, the minors, the victims in this case, the survivors, but not the perpetrators. And it fell on deaf ears. Oh, what a surprise. <laughs> Connecticut um, doesn't like being told what to do. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. We yeah. Know that. yeah um, that just doesn't work. Okay. So um, we still don't know exactly what led to Hadley's arrest, which I think is important. We are simply deducing that there could be, you know, a, it, it probably stems from the divorce. 
It I don't know where from the, it probably comes from the divorce and the discovery that was gained from the divorce uh, being leaked to law enforcement or being turned over to law enforcement in some form or fashion. And so after her arrest, Hadley applied uh, for something called special probation that's called an accelerated rehabilitation. That could be why she's in prison. But again, like I said, this sounds backwards to me and I don't get it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, accelerated probation. So how can you rehabilitate a sex offender rapidly? Exactly. Would any other parent in this country stand for that? No. 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 They would want that person on the registry for the rest of their life so that other people would know. Yes, and she's going to be a registered sex offender. That is part of the plea deal, but that's still not enough for me. You know, this accelerated behavioral whatever that she's going through, this blah, 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 rich person's treatment. But my question is, if she's going to be on the sex offender registry, but you're going to seal it, how would people know that she's on the sex offender registry? Because the sex offender registry is public. Well, I guess you can be on it because I've gone on it myself to look for people and you can find, you know, basic details, right? That she pleaded guilty and how much time she served. Uh, We do know what the charges are, but we don't know anything else. We only know what the charges are. Voyeurism, endangerment of a child. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I agree with you. I think it's. I think it's I think it's ridiculous. Well, anyway, Hadley Palmer is due back in court on August 1st for sentencing. Oh, let me guess. I say she walks out of that courtroom. With with 90 days credit for time served and some probation. Mm hmm. We'll check back on that one and update that one. Okay. It is now time for our comment section. These are the crime cases you all are talking about on our social media. And our producer, Will Updike, is here now with the latest on what you all are saying. Hi, Will. Hey, Anna. How's it going? Good. I just want to double check that you're not in a car, too. <laughs> no, no. Uh, I, I tried to I tried to carpool with Gerald, but uh, he said it was too full. So uh, I'm, uh, There's a lot I'm of stranded. People in the car. <laughs> Elbows are flying in Gerald's car. <laughs> so this week we might have what has to be a record for the show. Uh, Glendale, California man was reportedly arrested three different times within a 16 hour period over the weekend. So this all started, according to the Glendale Police Department, shortly after 3 a.m. on Sunday, February 13th. Now, the perpetrator is James Langdon. Uh, He was seen pacing around a parking lot and he reportedly ran out of the lot against a do not walk sign. So the police officers tried to stop him for the illegal action, but he then fled from the officers. So he was pursued and then arrested for obstruction after a brief struggle. So he was later released. He was given a court date. And then several hours later at 9.30 a.m., so about six and a half hours after this all started, he was reportedly trespassing at a business where he was using a screwdriver to try to gain entry to a closed part of the business. So he was once again arrested. Uh, He was booked for trespassing. And now there's kind of an interesting thing here because this occurred in California with the zero dollar bail order. He was released within three hours of being booked for that one. And he was again given a notice to appear in court at a later date. 
So now, later, at around 7 p.m., officers responded to the report of a burglary at an apartment building. Now, residents of the building noticed that a door was open and items within the apartment were moved around. There was also a man that they could hear shouting. So officers went back uh, and the man tried to hide in the victim's apartment, locking himself inside. So the Burbank Police Department got the K-9 unit involved. Uh, officers established a perimeter around the building so he couldn't escape. They tried to negotiate with him. He eventually exited the bedroom and was arrested without incident. Now, in total, in that last burglary, he caused around $6,000 in property damage to the apartment unit and the complex. He was arrested and charged with burglary and felony vandalism. And so as of Thursday, uh, February 17th, Langdon was in custody on $150,000 bail. But wow, what a weekend. Crazy. Sounds sounds like an episode of Hangover. (laughs) (laughs) It's just like, you know, and here in California, I mean, really, we do not jaywalk. Like in New York, I grew up in New York, and it's like, who cares what the light says? I got to go. Here... No, 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 no. You step off that curb, you really do get ticketed for for crossing against the light. Oh, they're so serious about it. It's insane. And the motorists are serious, too. They're not they're not taking any prisoners here. Uh, (laughs) But we got some great comments on this one on the True Crime Daily Facebook. Christopher B uh, shared a story. He said a friend of his uh, left the lake where they were all hanging out to get more beer and grab something from a friend's house. He was eventually eventually pulled over and arrested for DUI. When he got out that same night, he ended up going to get the beer and going to the friend's house to get the stuff, headed back to the lake and was again pulled over for another DUI DUI charge. So I I guess he didn't sit in booking long enough to kind of uh, to sober that one up. Uh, But that is uh, reportedly two DUIs in a 12 hour period. Uh, Clarissa F said surprised he wasn't a Florida man, which I do have to point out this did occur in California. We're not besmirching the the great state of Florida on this one. I, I don't want anybody to think that we just pick on Florida cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, Taz B said, and you have to look at this mugshot because it's a guy who looks like he's been arrested three times in 16 hours. <laughs> he's smiling. He's missing a tooth. Uh, and Taz B said he looks like a kindergarten gardener taking their first school photo. He's smiling so hard and missing his front tooth. Uh, Alex L said, he's not the thug we envisioned, but he's the thug we needed. Uh, (laughs) Earl K wanted said, why do I feel like this is an attempt for the Guinness world record? Now I I actually did a little bit of research on this. I couldn't find anything on the most arrests in a 24 hour period, but the Guinness world record, uh, book did clarify that the most arrested man is actually an Australia man named Tommy Johns who was arrested nearly 3,000 times for public drunkenness before his last drink in around 1988. So this guy has some some ground to cover if he wants mm-hmm. to get in the Guinness mm-hmm. Book of World Records. But hey, I mean, you know, three a day in a couple of years, you're, uh, you're easily surpassing that thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what? It's good to be good at something, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Y'all can be great, you know, <laughs> and maybe he wants to be great at going to jail. There you go. <laughs> Thanks, Will. See you next week. Absolutely. Thank you. Gerald, that is our episode for today. We are so grateful to you. We we, we got your messages from court that you were stuck and you showed up even in the car with your seatbelt on. <laughs> I was Thank wearing you. that seatbelt. I was not violating the law. 
No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. You, you really are such a <laughs> such a good person for, for rolling with this one. Where can people find you if they want to follow you on social media? On all social media, at Attorney Griggs or at my website, www.geraldagriggs.com. Terrific. I'm Anna G News with one N on all social media. We want to make sure that we thank our special podcast sponsor, HelloFresh. And of course, you can find all our episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, True Crime Daily, and then sign up to receive our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com. Until next week, I'm your host, Anna Garcia. And as we always say, don't do crime. <laughs> 